Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, this is not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It was a shark. Martin, it's his birthday tomorrow. I don't want him on the ocean. He's not on the ocean. He is in a boat. He's not going to go in the water. I don't think he'll ever go in the water again after what happened yesterday. This is a great white rally, a big one. And any shark expert in the world will tell you it's a killer. It's a man-eater. I'll catch this bird for you, but it ain't going to be easy. This shark... Swallow you whole. We want to begin with those shark attacks along the North Carolina coast. People being warned to stay out of the water. Sharks, as ghastly as they are graceful, have proven to be the ultimate survivors. The shark had basically removed all of my hand, uh, except for um, there was a bit of, of thumb meat, but that was it. And there was nothing that could be salvaged. You knew there was a shark out there, but you let people go swimming anyway. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by Dr. Michael Brooks. Hello. We are back. Oh, we're back, baby. Long old wait. Yeah, Long yeah, old yeah. wait. Yeah, what yeah. have we been doing? Well, oh, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Writing a great book. Yeah, I mean, one of the best books ever written. You are so very welcome. It's called Hollywood Wants to Kill You. It is out now. And in order to uh, make us feel better about having spent so much time writing it, be great if you bought it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's only right, really, isn't it? I think so. Just to support your local science-ish podcast spin-off book. <laughs> it's the catchy, catchy phrase we've been using. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to kick things off this week, and we are going to need a bigger podcast, because we're doing Jaws. Oh, love this film. One of the great films. Uh, I mean, it's, it's old, isn't it? 1975. Oh, really? And to be honest, old? I think, you know, we were just looking at it thinking... Why have, have we, we not? Yeah, have we not done Jaws? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely for me. I don't know if it's quite top ten. It's top twenty films. Yeah, and I know a lot of people who won't watch it because they find it really? too terrifying. Too, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it is incredibly mortifying. <laughs> the first time, like it, it's it's fantastically done. Yeah, um, has done unfathomably awful damage to the reputation of sharks. Yeah, yeah. So the guy who wrote the book originally... Peter Benchley. Yeah, yeah. Isn't he full of regret about that now? Riddled with guilt. I think he spent all of the um, intervening years just sort of trying to... Counting his cash. Yeah, well, obviously that, but also (laughs) trying to, like, uh, undo the bad work. So he does loads of um, sort of positive PR for sharks. Does he now? Um, How's how's that going? (laughs) Well, not brilliantly, I don't think. Um, but our, our big question yeah. about Jaws is going to be, 
Is there such a thing as a perfect predator? Oh, I like that. Who have we got to help us figure that out? You are not going to believe who we've got. The legend herself, Dr. Lauren Salan. Ooh. Assistant Professor in Interdisciplinary Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. So she describes herself as a fish paleobiologist and she applies big data approaches to the fossil record to try and figure out why some species end up winning and others lose. All right. She's perfect. Yeah. So what did we ask her first? So first of all, we wanted to know a bit more about how far back this whole predator-prey thing goes. So we know that predation goes way back in the record that most things have to eat. So we have evidence of some kinds of predation even among microbes where, say, a microbe will take in another microbe. It's thought that our own mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, actually originated from one cell hijacking another cell that maybe it intended to eat. But now, of course, it's feeding off of its energy source internally instead. Uh, as far as predators that we're more familiar with, things that are multicellular, we think that dates back at least 600 million years to the end of what had been a global ice age, where we see suddenly the appearance of much larger, not just microscopic, but actual fossils that we can see with the naked eye. And we also know that predators and prey have a lot of influence on the evolution of each other. And that's because prey, basically, if they lose to a predator, they die. Which is about the strongest selective pressure that there can be in an evolutionary system. So that means they constantly have to be a little bit better than other individuals in their same population at having better defenses or getting away from the predator and just surviving to the next day. Predators don't have it quite as bad in that they can eat something else if they miss a specific prey animal, but it also takes a lot of energy to go after things and chase them down and eat them, or even find them if they're in some kind of watery environment where it's dark, or things are far apart, or it also takes energy to process and crack open someone else's shell or body. So what ends up happening is that predators and prey tend to get locked in these arms races or show these escalatory patterns in the modern day, which means that prey get a little bit better at avoiding predators and predators get a little bit better at catching their prey. And ultimately, this changes the evolution of both predators and prey. So the story of life on Earth is basically the story of everything trying to eat each other from day one. Yes. Yes, yeah, pretty much. But you kind of like that makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a problem. I love that thing that Dr. Lauren mentioned there about the kind of the different um, incentives for prey and predator. Um, yeah, which it's is quite serious. For the prey, this is really it's a very big deal. <laughs> <laughs> as evolutionary pressures go. Yeah, yeah. Whereas for the predator, it's like, oh, that's annoying, I didn't get to eat. Um, I think, uh, Richard Dawkins called it the life dinner principle. All right. Like, there are very different uh, weights of importance, depending on your role <laughs> in that particular setup. <laughs> uh, but it's been, yeah, it's it's been going along almost since before life began. So in, like, proto-life. So... In the primordial soup, you've got these RNA molecules. So they're basically just enzymes that catalyze chemical reactions. And then you've got genes containing instructions for uh, you know, making copies. And so they're self-replicating. 
And so natural selection will have been at work. So if you're better at replicating, then you'll be a bit more successful, right? Mm. Some scientists think that these molecules will have been breaking down other molecules oh, okay. to get some of their bits oh. so they can replicate themselves, <laughs> effectively killing them. Digesting them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, in the most rudimentary way. Yeah. And it's possible, so one of the very first defences might have been to put your, your floating, these are just floating molecules, yeah. a great defence would have been just have a shield, have a, have a cell membrane. That very first step to forming cellular life may have been an adaptive response to predation. Wow. It's pretty cool. That's cool, yeah. 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 All right, so that, that takes you from like just molecules floating around and then yeah. one finds itself inside a kind of some kind of shield. Yeah. And then that is able to replicate itself without mm-hmm. danger. So it, it proliferates. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about when things get more complex than that? Yeah, so, so there are two main forms of life. Prokaryotes, which are very simple cells. So they just have free-floating DNA rather than a nucleus and then within some kind of cell membrane. Uh, and then you have eukaryotes that have more complex cells. So they have a nucleus and they have kind of basic uh, uh, cell apparatus uh, and other little like cell organelles. Um, so all plants and animals are eukaryotic. And the jump from the simple prokaryotic form to the more complex eukaryotic form occurred, I think it's about 2 billion years ago. No one really knows how. It may have been that a larger prokaryote was trying to eat a smaller prokaryote by engulfing it Mm. that seems unlikely because we don't see that behavior in prokaryotes now right but what you do see is smaller prokaryotes burrowing into larger prokaryotes to try and eat them from the inside so that is quite a good candidate for potentially forming so and then it ends up not eating it but just living in there yeah so then you get another little organelle so maybe that's how mitochondria ended up in there for example Right, yeah, yeah. Then obviously the next interesting step is how do you get from single cell to multicellular life, so complicated life that, yeah. we, that we see now. And researchers have shown you can do this experiment where you, you have a load of single-celled eukaryotes uh, and you introduce into their environment a predatory microbe, okay? And within 20 generations, those eukaryotes will evolve into multicellular forms. As, as a, a kind as of a defense. Form of defense, right. yeah. So that... that, that to be clear, that doesn't prove that that's what caused multicellularity, but it's certainly possible that yeah. it was it was predation effects. Because if you think about it, why is that helpful? Well, the most obvious way is a multicellular organism can afford to afford a bit of damage. It can afford to lose a cell. Whereas if you're single celled and you get done, you're done. You're done. Yeah. So yeah. having a few more cells is handy. All right. So so we've got to kind of multicellularity. That's still not animals, is it? I mean, so so when do we get to the big stuff? So. Bigger animals start emerging about sort of 600 million years ago. But, I mean, the fossil record isn't great. And a lot of these are going to be mainly soft parts. So they're not fossilized particularly well. Everything's in the ocean, by the way. Yeah, of okay. course. Nothing, nothing has gone out onto the, onto the dirt yet. Um, so you've got these creatures that start to get into these arms races that Lauren was talking about. So different traits and strategies that we can see in the fossil record. So hard shells, exoskeletons, bit of digging into the dirt, even like arms for grasping. Uh, teeth don't emerge until sort of 500 million years ago. So before that, 
it was uh, mainly just sort of <laughs> like sucking and crushing. Nice, sexy yeah. stuff. Oh, it's so sexy. <laughs> um, and the first, potentially the first apex predator was a thing called Anomalocaris, which basically means strange shrimp. And it's a good name because it does look like a weird shrimp. What's an apex predator? Oh, so uh, top of the food chain. Nothing else is trying to eat it. Oh, okay. I mean, it's horrible looking and it can grow up to like two meters long. It's oh, sort of like now got we're these talking. like barbed sort of feelers, armor plated mouth. It's a naughty looking bastard. <laughs> um, and it got amazing eyesight, I think. But they sort of look more vicious than they were, though. So initially, people thought, oh, these would have been like really getting stuck in yeah. and, and crunching down on trilobites and yeah. stuff. But it turns out that their mouths were quite weak. They couldn't really close them properly. Oh, no. So they certainly weren't biting properly. So it's probably just more sucking um, oh. and just like soft prey, like worms and stuff. But still, and these are like, I think these are sort of 540 million years ago. All right. But that's still disappointing, isn't it? You've got all the stuff. All well, the you, gear, well, no you, idea, basically. No, well, no, no, you look like you've got all the gear. Yeah. But actually, you've got Your a really, you've you got a really shit mouth. <laughs> Although at the time, it was probably the best mouth out there. Right. It just wasn't, it's just not what we would associate with a really yeah. like solid mouth. Right, now. the proper mouth is yet to come. Yes, exactly. <sighs> Gotta close the beach, call the mayor. <sighs> got a bigger problem than that, Morton. You still got a hell of a fish out there. With a mouth about this big. All right, so so we're trying to find the perfect predator. Mm-hmm. Want to start obviously with these apex predators. There's not many of them, are there? You'd thought there'd be more of them. If you're that good at what you do, you well, should be proliferating. Yeah, you'd think so, but because you have a sort of um, within an ecosystem, you have a fixed amount of energy. You have like a fixed energy budget. So when you look at the food chain, ecologists talk about these things called trophic levels, and so at the bottom you have your primary producers and at the top you have your apex predator. Uh, And then you maybe have, I'd say, four steps in between. Um, And at each step, at each trophic level, you reduce the amount of available energy by a factor of about 10. So by the time you get to the top, there just isn't that much energy available. All right. So so you're in a position where you can only have, you know, a small number of these things, basically. Yeah, exactly. Even though they're really good at hunting, nothing's coming after them, but there's just, the energy distribution basically says you can't have many of them. Yeah, yeah, you, you just, there, there is a limit to the amount of energy. And also they are themselves, they're, they're energy hoarders. Like they're big and they, they have to eat lots of calories in order to hunt. So not only is there not much energy, but each one takes up a lot of energy yeah. itself. Uh, okay. so, so that's what limits the numbers. You have a, a, a negative feedback being applied by the apex predators on the prey populations, and that gives you stability within that food chain. Okay, let's get on to sharks then, things that that's what we're meant to be about. So the first thing to know about sharks is they have been around for fucking ages. <laughs> <laughs> like, so they they first evolved over 400 million years ago. That, I mean, oh. that, it's insane. They're older than the first dinosaurs, mammals, trees like that older than trees older than trees yes please (laughs) i mean it's crazy they predate anything coming out of the oceans right no no animal life at all on on land they were around before the continent split up (laughs) uh there have been five mass extinctions have the sharks survived them all yes please (laughs) they're just uh absolutely nails or sort of well i'll let lauren explain not exactly that they're just nails (laughs) they've sort of got a bit lucky 
So mass extinctions have had some influence on the types of predators that we do see. So mass extinctions tend to change entire ecosystems when they happen. So the groups that were dominant before the mass extinction tend to be more susceptible to actually going extinct during that time period, whereas we see the rise of things that had been marginal afterwards. So this is sort of like dinosaurs being replaced by mammals. Mr. Vaughn, what we are dealing with here is a perfect engine, uh, an eating machine. It's really a miracle of evolution. All this machine does is swim and eat and make little sharks, and that's all. So sharks have survived all five mass extinctions, at least the big five that we talk about, since their first appearance in the fossil records somewhere around 400 million years ago. And the reason for this is that sharks have just been very lucky in the kinds of ecological things that they've ended up doing. So they've been apex predators, which means that they're more likely to eat a bunch of different things. But they've also taken some very weird directions that we don't really see today. So for example, after their first mass extinction at the end of the Devonian 360 million years ago, we don't really see sharks doing the kinds of things that we're more familiar with. So rather than being these apex predator eating machines, instead, a lot of sharks and their relatives, which are known as ghost sharks or holocephalans, end up becoming very tiny, like 10 centimeters or less, and doing a lot of the things that we associate with reef fishes today. They do that successfully for a while, and then we have the Permian mass extinction, and they come through that by making a weird choice to move from freshwater, which is where most of the actual sharks had been during the preceding period, and invading the oceans. But even after that, they're not really the kind of apex predator that we're used to until later in the Mesozoic, when they start to become much larger, they develop these dagger-like teeth, and it's that choice that has let them survive to the present day, to make it through the Cretaceous mass extinction, because they're doing a job that really no other fish is doing at that point. And with the loss of things like marine reptiles, that lets them sort of make it even further. Mr. Vaughn, I pulled a tooth the size of a shot glass out of the rectal of a boat out there, and it was the tooth of a great white. It was Ben Gardner's boat. It was all chewed up. I helped tow it in. You, sh you should have seen him. Where, where is that tooth? Did you see it, bro? No, I didn't see it. He, he dropped it. I had an accident. Way in. And what did you say the name of this shark is? It's a Carcaridon carcarius. It's a great white. But you don't have the tooth. So they've just been very lucky that they happen to be doing the right thing at the right time. During mass extinctions, we have this concept of selectivity that some lifestyles, some ecologies just aren't very good during mass extinction, even if they were fine before. And sharks, like all things that have survived all five mass extinctions, have just made the right choice unknowingly, both before and after the mass extinction. What are you talking about? Larry, the summer is over. You're the mayor of Shark City. These people think you want the beaches open. I, I was, I was, I was acting in the in the town's best interest. That's, that's right. You were acting, acting in the town's, town's best interest, and that's why you're going to do the right thing. That's why you're going to sign this, and we're going to pay that guy what he wants. So sharks have come out well. Oh, sharks have come out extremely well. Um, I mean, there's 500 uh, different types of shark. The one that we want to focus on, obviously is the big guy, it's the great white. The great white. So these guys are absolute Gs. Like, I've always loved, like many people, always loved sharks. 
Jaws did not put me off one bit. <laughs> Have you ever like, swum with sharks? Ter- uh, no, because I, I was going to do it in South Africa, Housie, and then I did a bit of research and <laughs> decided out. Well, no, just I think uh, ecologically. I mean, you can do oh, it was an where ethical they don't, decision. Where they don't chum the, yeah. don't use chum to attract uh, them over, but then your, your chances of seeing them are not very high. Right. Whereas if you chum them, obviously, then you will see them. But if you chum the water, so you put basically like, you know, like old fish guts and blood and stuff yeah. in the water, then the sharks come. Problem with that is apparently then the sharks start associating humans with food. Yeah. And so then they start approaching boats more often and, and then you, you get all sorts of problems. Yeah. But the thing about sharks is they, like, they're genuinely not interested in eating you. Like, you're not a good meal for a shark. Yeah. Uh, so so in, in Jaws, the problem with Jaws is that shark that is attacking humans would you'd never see it because we're a bad food source we're not calorific enough there's not enough fat on us even you and that- <laughs> <laughs> i was waiting for yeah. that has only been to the gym once in four months <laughs> uh, and 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 it looks like it and, uh, uh, but they you know and even when you look at the way that they approach prey is from underneath and like a furious burst that like whacks into the underneath of the seal throws them up in the air and then they grab them in the mouth that's how they they attack and when they seemingly attack humans it's always from the side and much more slowly which is effectively curiosity they just don't know what you are and they're trying to investigate and the only thing they've got available to investigate unfortunately <laughs> is uh, dagger like teeth, teeth. <laughs> and that that gives you problems but they so they never eat humans like when i mean there are very few human fatalities it's like five or six a year yeah. but they're never getting eaten like the, the sharks aren't you know that you don't find human parts in great white shark stomachs you just get a exploratory bite. yeah an exploratory bite that unfortunately can be um fatal <laughs> yeah can be a real problem yeah um but they're, they're, they are they're, they're like incredible animals they're they're much uh smarter and more social than I think we we give them credit for. You sort of imagine them as these sort of mindless killers. Um, but they're, they're, they're not. They're, they're clever. They're fast. Yeah. They can grow to some serious size over 20 foot. I think the longest ever was like 23 foot. Um, they've got incredible senses. So exceptional eyesight, sense of smell. They've even got good hearing. Have they? Yeah. I mean, you can't even see their ears, but they've got, apparently wow. their hearing is pretty good. But, Better than that is they've got uh, they've got a sixth sense. They've got this electroreception, so they've got all of these pores on their on their snout that have got these cells called the uh, ampullae of Lorenzini, which <laughs> really does sound quite sort of Star Wars, but uh, and that allows them to feel the direction of uh, electromagnetic fields. So they use them to navigate. That, that sense to navigate the open ocean. Wow. Effectively, we're using the sort of, you know, electromagnetic map on, uh, that's uh, on the Earth's crust. Wow. It's mental. So you never get lost with a shark? No. I mean, I probably don't hang out with a shark anyway, but no, you wouldn't. Uh, and they've also got an incredible sense of touch. So they've got this, uh, this lateral line, so tail to head, yeah. um, can uh, detect really slight vibrations. So if you're moving 250 metres away from a shark, it will be, it will able, feel to, the it water. Will be able to feel that. Right, yeah. They're, they're extraordinary animals. He's gone under. He's gone under the boat. I think he's gone under the boat. Yeah, it's too easy. He's a smart, big fish. He's gone under the boat. Keep it steady now. I got something very big. 
So they are at the top, aren't they? I mean, absolutely at the top. They must be. I mean, well, ruling the waves. They, you, yes, that they would be, if it wasn't for orcas. Oh. And great whites are, and they wouldn't mind me saying this, absolutely terrified of orcas. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because orcas are nasty, nasty bastards. <laughs> so there's a, um, a team, a research team in California, had tagged uh, a load of great, like 17 great whites, and they were circling around uh, specific islands and, and picking off elephant seals. And then one day, two pods of, uh, of orcas, who were killer whales, just swam past the islands. Literally, didn't, didn't do it, just, mm. just swam past. Yeah. All 17 great whites disappeared. Not not dead, just ran away. Just like, <laughs> orcas, no thank you. Just get the fuck out of it. <laughs> so Free Willy versus Jaws. Amazingly, Free Willy's owning Jaws. I mean, they're, they're faster, they're bigger, they're stronger. I think they're probably smarter as well. Really? Yeah. And they, they, they've got amazing sort of techniques by which they attack sharks so they they'll sort of drive them to the surface and then do this sort of like karate chop action with an a, like an overhead sort of tail swipe it's like whack like smash down onto the shark uh, they can do this uh, thing that you probably heard about where they can hold the shark upside down that makes them go into a sort of paralytic oh, state called tonic immobility which obviously i'm sorry not- but how are they learning this because they're really clever I guess sometime one orca worked out that you can hold a shark upside down. But I suppose it's like, then, how does anything then, work out anything? And then everyone else watches that and is like, oh, this is the way to do it. And then yeah. it passes down. Lads, lads, gather around. <laughs> <laughs> I've got something for you. <laughs> and they absolutely would do that, wouldn't they? They're yeah. like, come and watch this. This is unbelievable. Maybe the grisliest thing is that they target the liver of the great white shark. So the great white shark's liver can be like a quarter, it's huge, it could be a quarter of its body weight. And it's like the one of the densest sources of calories in the ocean. It's like really, right. it's, it's amazing, incredibly rich in fats and oils. Yeah. Like much more so than whale blubber, for example. Yeah. They bite near the, uh, the, the pectoral fin. Yeah. So there's a load of holes and then they effectively squeeze the liver out through the holes <laughs> like it's toothpaste. What? <laughs> what? So they make perforations? Yeah, make perforations. They squeeze the liver out. Mmm. Oh. <laughs> wow. Again, I mean, the yeah. first one who did that was like, you know, I mean, that was quite an innovation, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, you sort of get why they're called killer whales, don't you? God, they're nasty creatures. So it looks like, our answer is that the orcas are the apex predators of apex predators. It depends how you want to measure your uh, your, your, your perfect predator. Is it right. is it just being an apex predator? In which case, you know, you're you're obviously thinking of you know tigers and crocodiles and golden eagles. Yeah, um, but you could make an argument that being at the top of the food chain doesn't necessarily make you the most efficient killer. Because I think like efficient, successful killing is a good criteria for your best predator, Okay, I think. And so if you look at a, a Bengal tiger, only about one in 20 hunts results in a kill. That's yeah. not great. That's rubbish. Like for my predator of predators, my king of predators, I want a better success rate than that. So a lioness is hunting in a group, can be twice as successful as they will be on their own, but still... You know, you've got about a 30% or less success rate. Right, okay. So big and strong isn't everything. No. Um, so what would you say is the most successful hunter? Well, I think I'm going to surprise you here, uh, particularly as this is an episode about the film Jaws. 
But my shout for the most successful hunter on Earth is dragonflies. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, these guys are sick. So <laughs> in 2012, some researchers at Harvard found that dragonflies catch up to 95% of the prey they chase. Oh, you don't want to be that chased is, by a dragonfly. You really don't. You're like, you're fucked. <laughs> like, oh, no, okay, it's over. There's no point. Like, these guys, yeah, yeah. they're super opportunistic. They don't really care what they're eating. <laughs> they're just eating any, <laughs> anything that's of the right, that, that's flying around, that is the size of their head or smaller, they're having you. And that's it. Wow. And, and so they've got really, like, their eyes are uh, incredibly well um, adapted for this, so they can detect black spots against the sky, which is basically what they're going to go after yeah, really yeah. easily. The sort of muscular power of their wings gives them amazing acceleration and, and agility. And, and another different group of researchers, I think, um, have fitted these little sort of telemetry backpacks, which is cute. <laughs> oh, um, dragonfly backpack. Yes, to the dragonflies. And they can, they can kind of uh, take data from the, from the neurons both in the sort of like steering of the of the wings and the motor neurons, while the dragonfly is uh, is catching their prey, and they're trying to make this mapping of how the brain cells are working together to model the behaviour of the prey, because that's what they seem to be very good at: is predicting where the prey is going to go. That's why they're so they're so good. I they're, love dragonflies. Let me just say that. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, and and this, I don't know whether this is good or bad news because I just think of them as lovely, beautiful to look at, and you watch them fly, and they're amazing. Mm. The idea that they're these like absolute G predators. Yeah, and and they're, they're like it's lock like onto horrible. a target, and then that's it. You're done. Yeah, yeah. They know your next move. If you're a little moth or some piece of shit, like, <laughs> you are going down. It doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. Um, okay, so we've looked at orcas, we've looked at dragonflies. What we haven't looked at is the all-time great shitheads. Oh, that's us. Us. Uh, so we asked Lauren uh, whether she reckons that we, in fact, are the perfect predators. Is there such a thing as a perfect predator? Well, it's hard to say the word perfect in an evolutionary context because, of course, any kind of fitness or perfection is dependent entirely on the environment in which a species finds itself in. However, there are predators that tend to be generalist, and this gives them advantages, the same way humans have advantages over other predators which are specialists. And that's because, as I mentioned before, there's these sort of arms races that tend to happen between predators and prey. Well, a predator that can eat a lot of different things can avoid this arms race. And that has lots of benefits for it because generally a predator's population is entirely dependent on the population of available prey. And so that ends up limiting how many individuals they can actually have. Like there can't be more predators than the amount of energy they can actually get from the things that they're eating. But if they're eating a lot of different things, then they're not dependent on any particular prey species. And so if one prey species, say, collapses or goes to extinction, the predator can just find something else. In the case of humans, the reason human populations are so high are because of two things. One is that we can eat basically everything and pretty much every culture across the earth has at some point and survived in really sort of marginal environments like the Arctic or on small islands in the middle of the ocean because of our ability to take advantage of whatever resources are around. Looper, what exactly can you do with these things of yours? Well, I think I can pump 20 cc's of strictly nitrate into them if I can get close enough. 
You get this little needle through his skin? No, I can't do that. But if I can get him close enough to this cage, I think I can get him in the mouth or that the shark with that cage. You got any better suggestions? Learning to farm has been a really big benefit if you can control your prey's population sizes, and that includes both plants and animals in this case. Then there really is no natural limit on how many individuals you can have. Other things like disease or war or area are much more likely to limit human populations. So predation and dependence on prey is pretty much off the table. So we're basically setting up animals in a way that makes it easy for us to kill them with all this stuff, like industrial farming, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, just as a byproduct, like the sixth mass extinction that's going on now. Yeah, yeah. So, so we're influential, but as individuals, I mean, you know, you versus a bear, you're not going to win. So you're not... No, I am not. Not a great predator from that perspective. N- no, but we are, like, like Dr. Lauren was saying, because we'll eat anything, we're omnivorous, and we've removed the need to actually prey on anything. Yeah. Because we just yeah. keep them in a confined space and then kill them at will. Yeah. That's that's well done farming. Us. Yeah. Because we've used our nous is what <laughs> we've done. So look at the sharks killing I think it's six humans a year yeah. and effectively accidentally. Yeah. We're killing a hundred million sharks a year. A <gasps> hundred million. Makes me feel sick. And a lot of them for Shark's fin soup. Oh. And that that is a particularly barbaric thing where yeah. people are just chopping the fins off and then letting them sink down to the bottom and they slowly die because they can't swim anymore. I mean, it's awful. And then a lot of just like bycatch, uh, habitat destruction, overfishing so that right. they've got nothing to eat. A- every animal that we've talked about today, we kill yeah. in, in yeah. some way, directly or indirectly. So not just for uh, sustenance. Because you wouldn't, oddly, you wouldn't really describe us as an apex predator because we're sort of, we're like outside of the food chain, kind of, yeah, rather yeah. than on top of it. And, and we also have a horrible habit, I think, of killing animals in their prime. Yeah. In, in the quote-unquote natural world. On the whole, predators will tend to go for weaker prey. So they're not going to go for, like, the strongest adult you know, male or female. Yeah. Because it's harder to catch them. You right. might as well go for a young animal or an older animal or a or a lame animal or whatever. Like, yeah. It just makes sense. Whereas we we go after animals in their prime. Like fishing is a great example. So we go after mature adult fish at a rate 14 times higher than any natural predator. And that's a, there's a weird... There's a weird thing there because no one could quite work out what the right thing to do is because it used to be that People are like, Christ, we're fishing and we're catching all these young fish. Yeah. We need to stop doing that. And so then now, you know, there are regulations. Yeah. That you have to catch fish that are past a certain age so that the the younger ones have time to, to reach maturity and then and then reproduce. Yeah. But that doesn't seem to be working as well as we wanted to. I think the population dynamics of it and the reproductive cycles are quite complicated. Um but yeah, we we kill like fit adult animals. At astonishing rates. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're listen. We we're are, not great, are we? No, I'm I, it, talking about this. It makes me feel good about the fact that I'm currently trying to be plant based in my in my diet because it does. It's really uh, it's sort of sobering, isn't it, to think about y- yeah, how, or just how well we've industrialized this whole process. That yeah. you know, in the natural world, yeah, it's just you know, you take your chance and you're lucky or unlucky, and you make an effort mm-hmm. and you hunt and you might be successful or not. Yeah, but we have kind of 
got it down to such a fine art now. Yeah, yeah. That we don't need to hunt or anything, really. No. We just raise them and kill them. No, we just hunt for fun. Brilliant. With all this, can we answer the question? Is, is there such a thing as an apex predator or a perfect predator? As a perfect predator? I, I mean, Dr. Lawrence said it, didn't she? It does depend on the environment. Right. Um, so, you know, an apex predator in its environment will be doing an amazing job, probably. Yeah. But stick it in another environment, it's going to be useless. Uh, I, I mean, I, I <laughs> it's great because this has all <laughs> been about Jaws. But my shout is, uh, is dragonflies. <laughs> I'm going dragonflies. 95% hit rate. Did not see that coming. No, but are you going to argue it? No, no. I, I think that's extraordinary. It's next level. Yeah. I'm never going to look at them in the same way again. And I mean, they're not—they're not an apex predator. Like stuff's no, no. eating, yeah, stuff's eating them for them. sure. But they are taking care of business <laughs> themselves. <laughs> Love it. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and Dr. Michael Brooks. It was produced by Eli Block. The executive producer was Harry Watson. Special thanks to Lauren Salan. Next week, we'll be putting out our live show from the Underbelly Festival, all about Game of Thrones. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you, it does really help. You can also find us on Twitter at science underscore ish. It is great to be back in your ears. Uh, something else that's changed, Brooksy, I noticed, is that uh, on the sort of descriptions of the podcast, um, I'm always down as... Uh, Something like flaneur and irrepressible commentator. Yeah. Fine. Uh, you are down normally as, like, editor-at-large of New Scientist. Yeah, I don't know um, who came up with that, but yes, that's that's been there for a long yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's changed, your one, to Indiana Jones in a lab coat. <laughs> Has it? Yes. Right. Why? Um, that was once said about me. I mean, that, that, that's... By, by who? <laughs> that was a, in a review of, uh, I think, 13 Things That Don't Make Sense. Very another, good book. Another great book. Yeah. Uh, from Saga magazine. <laughs> <laughs> the old people. Oh. They love me. Indiana Jones in a lab coat. <laughs> what a prick. <laughs>